The Left's Incurable Munchausen by Proxy. It's time for an escape plan. As I began my drive across this big, beautiful country of ours, I saw real life going on. RVs filled with families hitched to trucks making their way somewhere. Lights turned on at grocery stores. Workers high atop utility poles fixing electrical lines. I drove through cities and pastures, across state lines, and on an interstate conceived and built by President Eisenhower. Then I tried to square it all with Joe Biden's commencement speech at Howard University. With an angry face and hate in his heart, Biden filled up their empty cups with fear and helplessness, warning them that they will always be judged in this country because of the color of their skin, not the content of their character. White supremacy, he insisted, was their biggest threat. But Biden's speech wasn't for them. It was for his re-election bid in 2024, now that his support among black voters is slipping from time, quote, but quietly there have been some rumblings inside democratic circles that Biden needs to do more to shore up his position with black voters. Biden's favorability ratings among black voters have shifted from 84% right after he took office in 2021 to 74% at the end of March, 2023, according to YouGov economist polling. End quote. For podcast listeners, a graphic of a headline that says black voters gave Biden the White House. They may determine whether he stays there. With low approval numbers and a lack of enthusiasm among Democrats overall, what option does Biden have but to ensure they remain broken and in need of rescuing by him? Who put Ketanji Brown Jackson on the Supreme Court? Who made history with Kamala Harris as the first female of color vice president? He did. It's his success, not theirs. They could not get there on their own, was the message Biden sent when he assured his supporters he would pick a black woman. His intense focus on both the black community and the transgender community is how he defines his presidency, but it also explains why his approval numbers are sinking with the majority. The country I'm driving across remains mostly untouched by the fanaticism that has overtaken Biden and our government. But more worrisome is the idea that Biden felt the need to burden these young graduates with the heavy load of trying to make their way into a country that, according to Biden, hasn't changed since the 1960s, and if anything, has gotten worse. He lays all of this at the feet of Trump and MAGA because it's his only play, but it's a play that works. Keep them scared, keep them broken, keep them compliant. Contrast Biden's speech with President Obama's just seven years ago. It was May of 2016, and Obama thought that Hillary, not Trump, would be president. Maybe that explains, at least partly, why his speech was so optimistic. He first tells students how much better things are now than they used to be. We're no longer entertainers, we're producers, studio executives, no longer small business owners, we're CEOs, we're mayors, representatives, presidents of the United States. And then he said, So don't try to shut folks out. Don't try to shut them down, no matter how much you might disagree with them. You know, there's been a trend around the country of, of trying to get colleges to disinvite speakers with a different point of view. 
or disrupt a politician's rally. Don't, don't do that. No matter how ridiculous or offensive, you might find the things that come out of their mouths. By contrast, Joe Biden's speech seemed to echo the new ideology of the left. Fear and hopelessness in a broken country that can only be fixed if we keep electing Democrats. So you see the game, right? We break the toy and then tell you only we can fix it. Here's Ben Shapiro. So now we get to it. So Joe Biden, he's speaking at this historically black college and university, and he explains that the most dangerous threat to America, the most dangerous threat to America is, wait for it, white supremacy. Not vast numbers of illegal immigrants crossing the border, like to the tune of 5 million since he's taken office. Not the threat of serious economic recession or possible collapse. Not the threat of a rising China in terms of its aggressive instinct. Not the threat of the falling apart of the American family. I I could name a, a dozen threats that are significantly worse than white supremacy. Now, again, that is not to downplay the evils of white supremacist ideology. White supremacism is idiotic, it is foolish, and it is evil. The notion that one race is superior just by dint of skin color is insipid. That, however, if we are going to gradate the threats to Americans today, white supremacy, like you in your daily life, you're going about your life, is the greatest threat to your life in America white supremacy? Is it really? You'd be hard-pressed to find a group of people for whom that is true. I say this, by the way, as a person who's been personally targeted by white supremacists to the tune of the FBI literally arrested a white supremacist a few years ago for threatening my family. So I take white supremacy, white supremacy and its actual physical threat pretty damn seriously. And even for people like me, I got to tell you, threats in my like threats to the country, white supremacy. Now, the reason Joe Biden is saying this is not because he thinks that a group of nut jobs in Iowa, for example, or Idaho, who think that white people are inherently superior are going to are going to do damage in a mass shooting. Okay, because that's true. There will be people who do stuff like that. But that's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about is the Ibram X. Kendi version of white supremacy in which everyone who does not mirror the political priorities of Joe Biden is a white supremacist. That is the implication of what he's saying. Here we go. Racism has long torn us apart. It's a battle that's never really over. But on the best days, enough of us have the guts and the hearts to stand up for the best in us, to choose Love over hate, unity over disunity, progress over retreat. To stand up against the poison of white supremacy as I did my inaugural address to single out as the most dangerous terrorist threat to our homeland is white supremacy. And I'm not saying this because I'm at a black HBCU. I say wherever I go. First of all, is there a non-black HBCU that I'm unaware of? Uh, Put that aside. The reason that he is saying this is because, again, the idea that you're supposed to take away from this is not that there's a group of white supremacists who might commit terror attacks. The idea you're supposed to take away from this is that it's being enabled by an entire substructure or superstructure in American society. Meanwhile, by the way, Joe Biden just says kind of casually racist things all the time. So in the same speech, he suggested that Ketanji Brown Jackson is brighter than the other justices. I've yet to see the evidence of this, considering she can't define the word woman. But sure, let's go for it. With your voices and votes. I was able to fill my commitment to put the first black woman on the Supreme Court of the United States of America. And by the way, she's brighter than the rest. She is one bright woman. He has no evidence that she's brighter than the rest. Like, seriously, none. But he's allowed to say that 
Imagine, by the way, if the race is reversed. Of course, you can't. It's not possible. No presidential can be like, that's when I appointed a white man to the Supreme Court. Let me tell you, he's much brighter than all the other people, especially the people who are white. Again, the kind of casual racism that is considered okay, depending on which race is considered superior, is pretty incredible stuff. The media, of course, have jumped right on this particular bandwagon. Some of the other members of the administration, Alejandro Mayorkas, the Secretary of Homeland Security, who is doing just a horrific job of ensuring that illegal illegal immigration does not swamp the country. He says that, yes, indeed, just like Joe Biden says, the greatest threat to the domestic homeland is, in fact, white supremacy. At his commencement address uh, for the Howard University graduates called white supremacy uh, uh, the, the major domestic terror threat in this country. Is that correct? Uh, it tragically is. You know, um, in the terrorism context, domestic violent extremism is uh, our greatest threat uh, right now. Individuals are driven to violence because of ideologies of hate. How could things have become so dire just seven years after Obama's message of hope? How can we not value what we have? How can we be stuck with a leader in an administration that wants us to be perpetually unwell? For podcast listeners, a graphic of Peachy Keenan's tweet that says, there's a short list of simple things that make basically any human happy, and we've made all of them almost unattainable. The question we should all be asking ourselves right now is what's wrong with the left? What happened? How did it get this bad? How did we become so afraid of the other half of the country? So afraid of everything, from the food we eat to the stove we use to cook, our own genetics, our instincts, our weather, our biology, each other. How can we possibly function as a society with leaders like Biden, who seem to want to perpetuate this rather than drag us all out of darkness and back into the light? Why is this a problem that has mostly consumed the left, and especially white females on the left? According to Pew, for podcast listeners, a graphic that says, Science, white libs more likely to have mental health problems. Majority of white female libs have a diagnosed mental health condition, according to Pew Research. Quote, nearly half of young white liberals, 46%, reported being diagnosed with a mental health condition. That was significantly higher than the percentage of young white moderates, 26%, and young white conservatives, 21%, who reported a mental health diagnosis. Young white people who identified as very liberal were considerably more likely to report mental health problems, even compared with their peers who identified as liberal. Across all demographics, young white females who identified as liberal or very liberal were by far the most likely to report a mental health diagnosis. In fact, a majority of young white liberal women, 56%, said they had been diagnosed with a mental health condition, compared with 28% of young moderate women and 27% of young conservative women, unquote. At least part of the problem seems obvious. Most conservatives are also religious and can give up much of their worrying to God. It isn't a burden they carry on their shoulders every day, because they can pray and ask for help from a higher power. On the left, we mostly abandoned God long ago, especially white liberals like me. We valued our atheism and believed religion was dangerous and too limiting. Perhaps that might have been true once long ago, but clearly there is a reason we need it. And some of that reason might have to do with our fragile brains trying to parse or make sense of a world that is full of chaos, war, starvation, 
genocide, and what other problems we've heaped onto that. Not to mention an internet and a news media that dumps catastrophe after catastrophe in our laps for clicks. No wonder we're so distraught if it's all up to us. That's part of it, though that's not all of it. It also has to do with what we've turned to instead of God, how we've decided that we could have a religion, but one based not on forgiveness, not on prayer, but on scolds, a judgmental eye, and harsh punishments, religious fundamentalism. It shouldn't be that surprising that this demographic and Joe Biden's demographic are the same. He focuses on the same marginalized groups that they do within the new woke religion. Here is Sagar and Jetty. All youth depression is skyrocket. Is it the smartphones? Is it general social paranoia? Pick your poison when it comes to these takes. But it's very glaringly obvious. Teen girl suicide, anxiety, self-poisoning, and major depressive episodes all began to skyrocket in 2011. As no one notes with smartphones, it came out in 2007. Why did it take so long? The actual mass adoption of smartphones amongst teenagers happened in 2011. But there's another take here, which is also important. Is it really the phones? Or are we just freaking out because they're new? A possible explanation is that social trends like smart phones combined with what can be best described as empty woke catastrophizing is leading to its own great awakening awakening it's young liberals who are actually especially depressed why just about everything that researchers understand about resilience and mental well-being suggests that people who feel like they are the chief architects of their own life are vastly better off than people whose default position is victimization so it could be that victimization and politics itself is to blame smartphones aren't at all or maybe it's both one day when my daughter was in high school at a progressive magnet in Los Angeles, she came home and said, I feel bad that there's nothing wrong with me. What do you mean? I asked. She said, my classmates all have something wrong with them and I don't. My daughter's generation had already begun to define themselves by what afflicted them because that's what we as parents did to ourselves and eventually to them. Anxiety, depression, self-harm, gender dysphoria, the problem, they were told, was chemical and inside their own bodies, and only something medication and treatment could fix. For hundreds of thousands of years at least, the role of the female was carved out. We were mostly mothers. The feminist movement separated us from what we on the left believed was a burden. I grew up with this ideology baked in. I thought it was the right path toward empowerment, a great career, and eventually a happy life. Happiness, though, turns out to be not a state of mind. It is rooted in service, what we do for others and for society. It is natural, then, that so many young women would turn to activism for happiness. They need to feel needed, which is what drives so much of motherhood. But of course, the left has eradicated the empowerment that comes with motherhood and their obsession with abortion now, and their obsession with eliminating gender norms. Young women are conditioned to believe that pregnancies don't matter and that they as women aren't special and that their ability to give birth isn't a miracle and that bringing a child into this world isn't an enormous responsibility. The new ideology tells them that anyone can become a mother and pregnancies are something to get rid of because pregnancies are oppressive. I'm not saying I think abortions should be illegal. But I am noting that it is abnormal to separate women from their essential role as mothers and childbearers. Young women still have a desire to be needed and to chase happiness. They want to push aside those needs to make way for those our culture told them matter more. 
But if you're always being told you don't matter, what is the final result of that? Hopelessness, despair, futility. A recent column in The Atlantic about an abortion doctor reveals that he once aborted a baby who was eight months along because the mother did not want to have a girl. For podcast listeners, a graphic, The Abortion Absolutist. Walter Hearn has been performing late abortions for half a century. After Roe, he is as busy with patients as ever. In general, he aborts babies with fetal abnormalities and has performed thousands of these, especially now in the wake of Roe. The desperation among a certain class of women, the same women who are depressed, the same women who coddled their children, and the same women that voted for Joe Biden, to condition women to not care even a little bit about aborting their babies is odd. A helpless society is a compliant society. So where is all this going? Why does Joe Biden feel the need to reinfect young black graduates with crippling fear about their future? Why are we as parents now so eager to indoctrinate our very young children in the gender ideology madness? Why all of a sudden is talk of overtly sexual things being normalized and introduced at too early of an age? A column in the Free Press today by Lisa Selen Davis talks about the marriage of activism with the mental health industry and concludes what many of us have already figured out, that woke therapy is actually doing the opposite of what therapy is for. It isn't making them better, it's making them worse. Quote, The point of therapy is for clients to develop more insight into what is troubling them and be able to live more resourcefully, says UK-based psychotherapist Thomas. The problem with critical social justice-driven therapy is that there's only one way of understanding the client's difficulties. And that understanding is you are operating in a sort of nexus of oppressed and oppressor groups in society. As Thomas put it, woke therapy weakens the client. Andrew Hartz, a clinical psychologist in New York, points out that when a therapist injects a specific political worldview into a therapy room, many patients are left feeling it isn't safe to ask questions. This population includes, he says, conservatives, liberals, and moderates who feel stifled and censored, people of color who are concerned about racism yet object to anti-racism ideology, gay people alienated by LGBT culture wars, cops vilified by communities they serve, and more, end quote. Slowly but surely, many of us are waking up to a movement that is not making any of us better, not making our kids better, not making our country better, not making our culture better, but one that is perpetuating trauma, recreating it, celebrating it, and centering it in our lives. Is it just widespread Munchausen by proxy? Is it an ongoing need to create a sick society that needs constant administrations? Do we need for there to be something wrong with all of us so that we can then also be the cure? Any victim of Munchausen by proxy had to find the courage to confront their caregiver and eventually escape their grasp. They find that once they do, the world wasn't as dangerous as they were conditioned to believe. There weren't threats everywhere. People weren't out to get them or hurt them or kill them. It's time for all of us, especially those of us who come from the left, to stand up to our cultural and political leaders, not to mention our own peers, and strengthen, not weaken, our citizenry. The hard part is going up against groupthink, as Konstantin Kissin explains. My grandmother, she was born in a gulag. She was there because 
her parents, who weren't married or didn't know each other at the time, had been sent there, both losing their other spouses in the process. Oof. And they met there, and she was born in, in this camp. And what happened once you were released from the camps was you were not allowed to live within a very long distance of the major cities in the USSR. Mm. You essentially became a, like a, a third-class citizen. And what happened was most of the former prisoners of these camps ended up settling in areas and small towns nearby where they lived together with the local small minority of the local native population, various sort of tribes that had been living there for, for centuries, and the former guards from the very same camps that these Whoa. prisoners had been in. In 1953, when Joseph Stalin died, um, my grand, my grandmother and her family, they were living in a tiny flat, tiny apartment. Uh, across the landing, there was another apartment, which was a family where the man was one of the guards in one of the camps. Jesus. Living across like this. And uh, my grandmother tells a story how that guy's mother, if the kids misbehaved, she would say to them, you know, when your parents get sent back to the camp. Jesus you're going to get kicked out and we're going to get your apartment as well. Wow. Now, 1953, Joseph Stalin dies. And my grandmother told me that there was a spate of suicides among these former guards. Wow. Because what they were doing was finally revealed for what it was. These people truly believed. They truly believed that they... They were beating these people and torturing these people and killing these people for the greater good because that's what they were told. Mm. And so what I say to people in the West always is do not be a useful idiot. Do not violate your own moral standards and your own moral rules for the sake of the greater good. There is no greater good than your own moral standards. There is no greater good than that. Do you know, in fact you do because you've read the book, but most people have no idea how the USSR got a nuclear bomb. It was given to them by Soviet sympathizers in the West. And that is why Joseph Stalin, a man who killed millions of his own people, ended up having a nuclear weapon and was able, therefore, to threaten and challenge the West. And that's how you end up with a Cold War. Mm. Because people in the West, some of them, were so enamored with their own vision of utopia that they would give the most destructive weapon in the history of the world to one of the most evil men in the 20th century because they believed in this collectivist vision and they were useful idiots do not be a useful idiot do not violate your own moral code for anyone for anything that's what i say to people in the west how do you come up with a moral code This has all worked out well for the Democrats. They have raised an entire generation that sees voting as a matter of life or death. They see it as an impressive force that must be reckoned with. And they are aware of their own power, as opposed to generations past like mine, who were far too anti-establishment to care about voting. Here is a video from Carol Markowitz. I would say that the conversation about what to teach kids and at what age is larger than just sex either. I, I don't know why we're teaching climate change fear to small children. 
age appropriateness is such a big part of all of this. And the left really wants to remove the boundaries of age appropriateness. And you could see this with the drag queen shows. It started with Drag Queen Story Hour, where a drag queen would read a book to kids. Where's the last time we saw a book in any of these events? Now it's twerking and, and dancing. This really inappropriate behavior becomes something that you must not only accept, you must also support. And a lot of what we go through in the book as well is how the spectacle of leftism is such a big part of it. It's not just that you need to believe certain things. You need to demonstrate that you believe them. You can't just think Black Lives Matter. You need to put the sign in your window. And so all of this is very, again, Soviet, totalitarian, authoritarian, and it's coming here and it's aimed at our kids. If they have brought the entire movement full circle, then it is for them very much a part of turning this country into Tumblr circa 2013. And they have a whole class of women and mothers who are encouraging them and are activists right alongside them. Without a similar sense of urgency on the right, the left, awash in Munchausen by proxy, will never get the wake-up call they so desperately need. And yes, that means voting for leaders who will put an end to much of this ongoing push for brokenness that has infected so many of our institutions. It means voting for leaders who believe in merit over equity. Joe Biden might want the Howard graduates to believe that only he can give them the success they so desire, but we know that isn't true, and we need leaders who will tell them that. We need them for the future of the country, the future of the world, and the future of our children. What could possibly be more urgent than that? This doesn't mean abandoning mental health or necessary treatment. It doesn't even mean abandoning the issues we most care about. It's that we've reached the moment where we're onto the big fake, and it's time to rescue the patient from the grips of madness. Lincoln, Nebraska, May 17th. 2023, 9.53 a.m. Thank you for listening to my Substack, sashastone.substack.com, and thank you for reaching out to me and, and telling me to visit you in your states. I'm, I'm on a schedule, so I'm not stopping anywhere, but I will catch you up on, on everything that's happened so far on my trip when I get a moment. And remember, to thine own self be true. Through the badlands 
of Wyoming, I could hear it in my pain. I can't see it. I'm sorry for the things that we've done. At least for a little while, sir. Me and who we had some fun. Jory brought in guilty verdict. Man, the judge sends me to death. Midnight in prison store with leather straps across my cheek. Shove when the man pulls that sweet up and snaps my ponyk back. You make sure my pretty baby's sitting right there on my lap. They declared me unfit to live Said into that great void My soul be hurled They won't know why I did what I did Sir, I guess it's just me in this world 